My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Helen Hudson and Bill. The collective behind the Certain Days Freedom for Political Prisoners calendar envisions it as a tool that can help carry knowledge, radical conversation, and solidarity across lines that often divide our movements, across prison walls, across national borders, across generations, and across issue-based silos. The collective is comprised of three longtime political prisoners held in New York State, Herman Bell, Robert Seth Hayes, and David Gilbert, and people on the outside in New York, Ontario, and Quebec. Since 2002, they've produced a wall calendar that each year features gorgeous original artwork and articles on a range of topics related to struggles for social justice. Proceeds from the calendar go to the Adamir Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association, an organization that supports political prisoners in Palestine, Release Aging People in Prison, which is based in New York State, and often a third organization that changes from year to year. They also encourage groups involved in a wide range of struggles to use the calendar for their own fundraising by buying at the bulk rate, selling the calendars, and keeping the difference to support their own work. Each year, the calendar is organized around a theme. The 2018 calendar, which is available now from CertainDays.org and in many independent bookstores, info shops, and radical social spaces across the continent, has taken up the theme of awakening resistance. As Helen Hudson points out, it's a theme that could fit in any year, but that seems particularly apt as the Trump regime deepens its hold on the state apparatus in the U.S., and the far right is further emboldened in the streets on both sides of the border. Helen Hudson is a longtime anti-authoritarian organizer and a member of the Certain Days Calendar Collective, and Bill is a migrant justice organizer with the group Solidarity Across Borders. Both are based in Montreal. In today's episode, we talk about the Certain Days Calendar itself, but also explore in a broader way questions facing movements related to the 2018 calendar's theme of awakening resistance. And we do this with an eye to the kinds of things we can learn across the prison walls, across national borders, across generations, and across our issue-based silos in this dangerous moment. My name is Bill. I'm an organizer with Solidarity Across Borders. We're a grassroots network of migrants and their allies who work to fight deportations and to support people who are living without status or with precarious status, mostly in Montreal and the surrounding area. My name is Helen. I'm a member of the Certain Days Freedom for Political Prisoners Calendar Collective. So that's my primary, I guess, identification with which I'm coming to this conversation. Given the conversation we're going to have, I guess it's also relevant to say I'm, in general, a prison abolitionist, consider myself an anti-authoritarian. The Certain Days Calendar is a joint project between a collective of people outside of prison, some of whom are in Montreal, others are in New York City and in Ontario. 
and three political prisoners who were held within New York State, Herman Bell, Robert Seth Hayes, and David Gilbert. All of those three political prisoners have been organizing since before their imprisonment in the 1970s, 80s, well, organizing since before that in the 60s. And when each of those three prisoners were held close to Montreal, developed organizing relationships with people in Montreal, and were looking for a joint project, at which point Herman Bell proposed that we produce a calendar, a wall calendar with art and articles to raise funds for, but also raise awareness about political imprisonment and prisoner justice in general, but to tie those issues to broader movements for social justice. So what that's become over the years since 2002, when the first calendar was produced, what it's become is a yearly calendar with a theme of a particular social justice issue every year with contributions from prisoners and non-prisoners in terms of art and writing and also the calendar itself, you know, the dates of the calendar, as well as listing things like, you know, Christmas, Easter, Hanukkah. It also lists important dates in uh, social movement history, commemorations and celebrations alike. One thing that I quickly learned when I got to know people behind bars, including the three prisoners who work on the calendar on an ongoing basis, but other political prisoners, other prisoners who came out of social justice movements before their imprisonment, is how much they have to contribute and how much they are contributing to our grassroots movements. And one of the things that imprisonment does is it divides people and cuts us off from our elders, cuts us off from some very experienced and very competent organizers talking with David and Herman and Seth over the years about all kinds of issues from like anti-globalization, organizing, Palestine, anti-colonial and anti-racist work, gender. Their contributions are huge and their imprisonment seeks to cut off those contributions. So one thing we're trying to do with certain days, a forum for those voices to be heard on the outside and also to just serve as a daily reminder by hanging on people's walls that this movement history exists and that political prisoners exist and they're part of our movements. The theme for this year's calendar is Awakening Resistance. I guess with that title, it could kind of be a theme for any year, but why it's particularly a theme this year is when we put a calendar together, we start pretty much like a year in advance. So, you know, right now at this moment, as we're recording this interview, the year 2018 hasn't started yet, but we're already thinking what's going to be the theme for the 2019 calendar, because we need to you know, get a call for submissions. We need to get submissions from prisoners, which takes quite a while. And then we need to produce the calendar on time to have it out on bookstore shelves and the like by hopefully September. So at the time when we were coming up with the theme, Away. Trump was running for office. And if people think back to this time last year, we were seeing the far right becoming more emboldened. And we we're also seeing, I guess, sort of the reality starting to sink in that like, wait a second, this guy could actually win. And what is that going to do to the political landscape? And so then when he did win, and when we saw the effects of that, which we will talk about throughout the rest of this interview, I'm sure, it just became clearer and clearer that this was a very particular moment in history and there was going to be a need for some conversations in our movements about all kinds of issues, both on an issue-based level, like the rise of the far right, like borders, migrations, you know, all conversations that have started and have been ongoing, obviously, but the landscape had changed in a significant way. So that's what we're trying to speak to with this year's theme. So part of our goal for our conversation today, beyond talking about the 2018 Certain Days calendar itself, 
is talking about the current moment and its implications for movements in this country in a way that takes up the spirit of the calendar's 2018 theme of awakening resistance and the kinds of work that the calendar does around circulating insights and conversations and solidarity across different sorts of divides. So maybe a good place to start with that is for the two of you to talk about the current moment. What's distinct about what's happening now, particularly in the Canadian context? Obviously, a lot of what we're seeing in Canada echoes what's happening in the States and is similar, especially in terms of far-right groups who feel emboldened and who are kind of capitalizing on the Trump presidency and the fact that the Trump presidency brings some of their ideas into the mainstream. Obviously, we're, we're seeing that. But I also think that in the Canadian context, the rise of Trump also serves a more insidious purpose because I also think that it actually very conveniently serves the Canadian myth in a lot of ways. And I think that's an important part of, especially when talking about immigration or talking about colonization or things like that, that Canadians have this self-identity of being more liberal, more progressive, more welcoming. And much of that is framed in terms of being better than the United States. So in that respect, I actually feel that in some ways, Trump has been very helpful in Canada in terms of normalizing certain forms of racism and certain forms of exploitation. So a big thing that we've been talking about a lot in Canada is the Safe Third Country Agreement, which is an agreement that exists between Canada and the U.S., which means that any migrants, refugees in particular, who are coming to Canada through the U.S. are barred from entry. So in a lot of ways, it serves the same purpose as the proposed wall that Trump is talking about, but it does so in a way that still allows somebody like Justin Trudeau to tweet about how refugees are welcome here and still kind of allows that kind of national narrative to exist and kind of validates it in a way. So I think that's also a big challenge in our organizing here. I absolutely agree. One of the ways that I look at it is with this Canadian myth of, you know, we're better than the U.S. insofar as we're more progressive than the U.S., things shift to the right, then better than the U.S. or more progressive than the U.S. shifts to the right as well. So the whole political landscape moves. And in a lot of ways, our media landscape is so linked between both sides of the U.S.-Canadian border that what gets said in the U.S. media obviously still has an effect on the public discourse here. So certainly with the emboldenment of the far right in the U.S., we immediately saw the far right on this side of the border jump on board of that too. I actually can't speak that well to the media landscape in English Canada, but certainly here in Quebec, we've seen a significant shift, I would say, in terms of the media discourse of what's acceptable to say and what groups can have a public forum in the mainstream media. Far-right groups here in Quebec, like La Meurthe, are now considered legitimate. They're just sort of one more political actor, which I would have been surprised to see before. But particularly those who cast themselves as progressive, such as Justin Trudeau being the, the prime example, it just allows for a rightward shift to look like it's not that and to look like it's still progressive and caring and warm and fuzzy because it's not Donald Trump. When we talk about the media or we talk about how people talk about things, these shifts, they're also very concrete or they have very concrete impacts on people's lives. So to give one anecdote of the effect that this, this, uh, th these kind of discourses have, 
Solidarity Across Borders has some relationships with folks who do similar organizing in the states. And there was an increase in the border crossings. We were trying to share resources and share information and basically to try to help prepare people if they were going to be crossing the border to know what to expect. And we were sharing this information about what would happen if people went to a normal point of entry and that they would receive an exclusion order, which doesn't just mean that they're turned back. It means they're banned for life from ever making an application in Canada. And some people who we talked to, we had these conversations but then people would see what Justin Trudeau is tweeting and they'd see stuff in the media and they'd think, well, this can't be true because look at what the prime minister is saying. And then they would go to the border crossing and then they would be refused. They'd receive an exclusion order. They'd find another way to cross irregularly. But now because they're banned from making any kind of application, that means that indefinitely they're just remaining here without status. So there's a huge form of structural violence that's taking place there that's also kind of invisibilized. So basically, Trudeau, by tweeting refugees welcome, when those exclusion orders are in place, he's kind of entrapping people into getting an exclusion order. And in this moment, what do you think that movements and communities and struggle in Canada can learn from grassroots resistance happening in this moment in the U.S.? Certainly on my end, I see a level of inspiration coming from the U.S. simply because Trump is there, is so directly, obviously a changed moment there from the moment he entered office. To give a concrete example, the airport actions that happened when the Muslim travel ban was first announced. And a lot of people who were not previously involved in grassroots organizing just more or less spontaneously showed up to these airport actions. Certainly there's a lot of inspiration to be gained from that. And I think that's something that I ask myself, you know, how can we sustain that through the coming years? In some ways, it's already starting to wane a little bit, but I think there's a lot to be learned from that. The other thing I would say is the reconnection of Antifa movements. Uh, and Antifa is an abbreviation of anti-fascist. That have, have existed all along, but sort of the, the rekindling of a conversation between Antifa organizers and broader anti-racist and even broader social justice movements that maybe have not had monitoring and opposing the far right as their focus and sort of re-coming together with those movements. I feel like I saw happen in the U.S. more swiftly or slightly earlier, although that may be just my personal perspective on things. You know, not, not to say that that didn't happen, it isn't happening here, it certainly is. But I think just given the numerically larger far-right movement in the U.S., there's certainly a lot to be learned from Antifa organizers on that side of the border. I definitely agree with that. I also think, I mean, I'm maybe alone in being one of the few people who actually feels somewhat optimistic in the current climate. Because, so for instance, the example that Helen just gave a much larger far-right in the U.S., there's also a much larger migrant justice movement, and much of it led by migrants themselves. And I actually feel very encouraged because I feel north of the border, I feel like I'm in the last couple of years, I'm seeing that also emerge in a way that I haven't previously. So I'm actually excited to see that emerging. If I can just bring in the calendar a little bit, the way that one of our prisoner members, David Gilbert, frames the current moment is one of dangers and opportunities. So that inspiration and also the shift to the right itself are so inextricably linked. I share Bill's optimism in a way, but I feel like the dangers and the opportunities are really two sides of the same coin. And in a way that that's where our theme of awakening resistance comes from insofar as, you know, repression begets resistance and resistance begets repression. So they're always sort of tied together. But certainly, as we were talking before about the Canadian myth of things being somehow better here, 
the very linked. I think that, you know, migrants, but also any other group of oppressed people here sees people in the U.S. starting to self-organize at a different level as the repression increases. And I'm hopeful that that can have some influence in building movements here, too. And I do think I'm starting to see that on a number of fronts. What have you been hearing from movement elders, both incarcerated and not, about resistance in this moment? Well, history has this way of repeating itself, right? And history also has this way of being, I was about to say forgotten, but not so much forgotten, but actively buried by the powers that be. Because the more that we as social justice movements repeat our mistakes, the better it is, obviously, for systems of power. So the more that we can connect with movement elders, including political prisoners, the better. And to go back to that piece by David Gilbert, David is always very good at tying things back to history and taking the longer view of things. A number of analysts, including many elders, David included, have have pointed to the fact that like Trump's victory didn't come out of nowhere. Trump's election builds directly on Obama's legacy in office. You know, we've been talking a lot in this interview about migration and people are quick to point out that Obama deported more people than any president previous. But David, in that article that I'm referring to, he comes back to the fact that there's been economic stagnation, more or less, since the early 70s. So there's been sort of attempts by global capital to kind of re-kickstart itself but it's not really working. So every time there's an attempt to bolster capitalism, it comes with deeper cutbacks to the services that had been sort of given as carrots previously. And and I really agree. I've learned a lot from him. One thing he says in this piece, which he titles The Decline of Imperialism, is decline does not mean collapse, and that a predatory beast like capitalism, when it's wounded, is going to lash out in even more vicious ways. And that image, I feel like, really explains a lot of what we see happening now. Talk more about the importance of movements learning from political prisoners and from prisoner justice organizing. The way I kind of look at it is that I think any social movement which is successful that makes gains If it's not connected to political prisoners now, it will be soon enough, because I think that's always a natural response to successful social movements. Most of my organizing revolves around migrant justice, so I can use that as an example where, yeah, it's true that a lot of people might not think of it as connected to political prisoners, but I think even if you just scratch the surface, you'll find lots of connections. Maybe that means that somebody who's come here was a political organizer, was in prison in their country of origin, and maybe that was the reason why they were displaced or why they migrated in the first place. Maybe it means that they're inadmissible now because of it, because of criminality. And much of this depends on what is Canada's relationship to the country of origin and whether they view that imprisonment as legitimate or not, which is usually tied to questions of economics and political dealings and things like that. So that's one example. Maybe it means that people were detained as they got here. There's been actually a lot of really inspiring uh, organizing done by detainees. The hunger strike in the Lindsay Detention Center that happened a few years ago. We're trying to organize in Montreal right now because they want to build a a new detention center in Laval. And to me, that's a really good example of the connection between these things, because the narrative that the liberal government is using to justify this is they're actually taking some of the more mainstream criticism of immigration detention that's been made. So, for instance, Canada's received a lot of flack for the fact that migrants will be detained in prisons with prisoners who are there for reasons of criminal matters. So to me, it's really useful to look at that through a prison abolition lens because immediately it tells us a lot about criminality, who's criminalized and why, and what that means. 
makes us realize that actually people who are in jail for criminal reasons, the circumstances that led them to be there are not so different than the circumstances that lead people to be detained as migrants. But particularly in this context, what it means is the government turns around and they say, oh, okay, so the problem is migrants are being detained with criminals. Therefore, the solution is let's create more dedicated spaces for immigration detention so that won't happen. And what it actually leads to is an increase in detention because once they create those spaces, obviously they're going to fill them. So to me, that becomes part of the challenge there. So to me, those are just a, a few of the examples. Prison, I feel like, connects to any other social justice issue if you just start to brainstorm the ways in which those connections happen. I also really want to echo what Bill was just saying in terms of any social justice movement that has even the tiniest bit of success is going to have to very quickly learn how to deal with imprisonment as a tactic of repression, both the imprisonment itself, but often the legal battle side of things like fighting imprisonment and then having movement resources need to be redirected to legal battles, fighting charges, etc. But I think talking to movement elders and talking to political prisoners, not just talking to in the sense of having like the occasional one-on-one -on -one conversation, but really trying to bring their voices into organizing that happens outside of prison is essential for the survival of any social justice movement when that level of repression comes to pass. The more that we can understand what being imprisoned and what organizing in prison and what supporting imprisoned organizers means, what those things concretely mean for grassroots social justice movements, the more prepared we can be when it happens to us, us on a personal level, each individual, but also us particular movements or particular organizations that may not have had political imprisonment be part of the reality before. The one thing I should add as I'm throwing around the term political imprisonment is just to go back to what Bill was saying a moment ago about the way that prisoners are often divided into these different categories of deserving and undeserving. So that divide can happen between people detained as migrants and people detained through the criminal legal system, but frequently within our social justice movements between political prisoners and so-called social prisoners, like i.e. people for whom the circumstances of their incarceration doesn't stem directly from social justice organizing. But if we scratch the surface, we see that, you know, all imprisonment is political. So, you know, looking at prisoner organizing as a whole, as well as organizing of people whose imprisonment stemmed out of social justice movements, I think is, is very important at any time, but possibly now more than ever. So factoring in what we've talked about in terms of learning from the U.S., learning from movement elders, learning from prisoners, what do you think movements in Canada should be doing to, quote unquote, awaken resistance, both in terms of opposing the rise of the far right and to challenge the smiling face of neoliberalism that is Justin Trudeau? You know, the answer might be a lot more mundane than we might think. I'm a big believer in just sort of plugging away at organizing. Upsurges in organizing certainly are important for inspiration and, and for movement building. But I think this is an important moment to build the groundwork. We need to recognize that this is one moment on a trajectory that has the potential to go in a very bad direction. So to use just one example, there's a lot of very inspiring Indigenous organizing going on within the context of the Canadian state at this moment that Trudeau seems to be trying to co-opt or trying to sort of cast himself as accepting of Indigenous voices and trying to sort of shut down what could become a more radical force to be reckoned with. 
if we look, say, at the Canada 150 celebrations and the presence on Parliament Hill of the Indigenous folks that were trying to expose exactly how colonial these celebrations were, I feel like I've seen some interesting attempts to, on the one hand, co-opt that, on the other hand, resist being co-opted. And I think if we look south of the border, I feel like throughout Obama's presidency, there was this sense of, you know, Obama's progressive, Obama's onside, and people were very much caught off guard by Trump. But I think what we can really learn at this moment is that these things sort of go in waves and there is likely to be a pendulum swing to the right. And the more we can understand that in this moment, the better prepared we'll be a few years down the road. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree that what we have to do differently might not be so dramatic. Or at the very least, I think one of the challenges is going to be because I obviously I think it's important to be confronting the far right and to be engaging with that. But I also think that we need to be continuing on with the projects that have made gains in the first place. And maybe to close things off, Helen, bring the conversation back to the 2018 Certain Days calendar and the ways you hope it will be useful in awakening that resistance. Certain Days 2018, I I guess we haven't talked that much about the content, but it in some ways echoes the conversation we've had today. There's content about the far right. There is content about resisting the border wall. There's content about resistance and building resistance within prisons. There's beautiful artwork. There's maybe a couple of articles that I would highlight simply because they touch on issues that we didn't have an opportunity to talk tons about. One is we repeated a piece that was written actually about 10 years ago by April Rosenblum that's an excerpt of a longer piece about anti-Semitism in social justice movements. And we thought it was important to include something on that topic as the far right becomes more active and as Antifa organizing becomes a more important piece of all our work, even those of us for whom it's not the central focus of our work just to have more of an understanding of how anti-Semitism plays out day to day. And another piece is a piece about the border wall at the Mexican-U.S. border that Trump is planning. And this is a piece written by indigenous organizers, basically from an anti-colonial perspective of why that wall should not and cannot exist as the border should not and cannot exist and must be resisted. Those are two of the 12 articles that we have. There's 10 more and there's lots of other content. And as I was mentioning at the beginning of the interview, we always hope that certain days can be a tool. So we want people to buy the calendar so that we can raise more funds for the groups we're raising funds for. But we also want to get it into people's hands so that they can discuss the articles, be inspired by the artwork and fundraise for themselves. So I really hope that part of an awakening resistance and a growing movement in 2018 can be the use of the calendar by folks that are grassroots organizing on both sides of the border and on both sides of the prison walls. The calendar can be bought directly through our website, certaindays.org. I will give the mailing address if there's anyone who wants to order it, for example, who is in prison. They can do so by writing to Certain Days, care of Cooper Concordia, that's Q-P-I-R-G-C-O-N-C-O-R-D-I-A, 1455 De Maisonneuve Boulevard West, that's D-E space M-A-I-S-O-N-N-E-U-V-E, Boulevard West, Montreal, Quebec. Postal code H3G as in George, 1M as in Mary, 8. The calendar for individual sales is $15, $8 for prisoners, postage included. You have been listening to my interview with Helen Hudson of the Certain Days Freedom for Political Prisoners Calendar Collective and Bill of Solidarity Across Borders. 
To learn more about the calendar or to order a copy, go to certaindays.org. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.